Spherical cow. Hello there, and welcome back to Spherical Cow. This week we are travelling to the darker side of the universe and Naina is going to tell us all about dark matter. So, take it away Naina. Thank you Olivia. Um, so, as I mentioned last time, um, briefly, I said that all the normal matter, all the, the matter and the antimatter that we see in the universe actually makes up a tiny fraction of all the mass and energy in the entire universe. So, um, most of the universe is made of things we can't see um, with light. And by light, I don't just mean visible light, I mean any light on the electromagnetic spectrum. So, I mean, you can't see it with radio waves, you can't see it with microwaves, you can't see it with x-rays, you can't see it with visible light. So, all, most most of the stuff in the universe is made of things we can't see. Whoa, and so it really is invisible stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and these mysterious things I keep talking about, that's dark matter and dark energy. And they're named dark because you can't see them with electromagnetic radiation. Um, so I'm going to first start off with dark matter. Um, so some evidence for dark matter came in the um, 1930s. Um, it was from work by um, Fritz Swicky and Sinclair Smith. And um, they came up with this idea of dark matter being present in galaxies in the sky. But I think their results were kind of like written off a bit, um, partly, partly because people didn't like really believe in dark matter at the time. But also, I think they weren't very accurate. So um, that, that was kind of put on hold until the 1970s when um, Vera Rubin and Kent Ford, they made some optical observations. So that's observations using um, visible light. So they were observing the Andromeda galaxy, um, also called M31. Um, and so what they thought should happen, when you look at a galaxy, there's lots and lots of stars in one galaxy and they all kind of orbit around a common centre of the galaxy. Um, so if Is you that why you get that kind of like nice swirly pattern when yeah. you see the pictures? Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. It's because all the stars are kind of rotating around the, like, the centre of the galaxy. Um, and if you remember back to like I think our second episode when we were talking about like gravity and general relativity, um, the equation that Newton came up with um, was the force of gravity is equal to g, the gravitational constant, times um, the mass of like maybe the center of the galaxy, the times the mass of the star we're looking at, all divided by r squared. So if you look at that equation and you think most of the mass in the M31 galaxy is actually concentrated at the center, so that implies that as you get further and further out from the center, the gravitational force should get weaker. And if the force pulling on the star um, is weaker, that means it can't move around as fast in its orbit, because otherwise it would just like fly out. And yeah. um, obviously that wouldn't make sense. So they expected that as you get further and further out from the center of that galaxy, um, the stars would be traveling slower and slower. But when they made their optical ob observations of um, the Andromeda galaxy of M31, they found that um, the distant stars actually travelled like just as fast as some of the slightly closer ones. What? So that really confused them. Yeah, that, that doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, exactly. How could it make sense? Because um, surely they'd be feeling a weaker gravitational force and if they were spinning as fast as you... if they were rotating around the galaxy as fast as you saw, that, that just wouldn't make sense. So they concluded there must be some extra matter surrounding the centre of the visible... so the visible centre of the galaxy. So I said that all the matter was clustered and centred at the middle middle um, of the galaxy. Well that's actually the matter that we can see. So Rubin and Ford suggested um, that actually 
that's not all the matter in the galaxy. There's actually lots of dark matter surrounding that dense nucleus, which is what's providing that extra gravitational force oh. to keep those distant stars um, in their orbit, even though they're going like quite fast compared to what would be expected. Okay, so it's kind of like this invisible this invisible matter which is providing so yeah providing a force which keeps the distant stars of the galaxy going around at the same speed so that's what allows that to happen yeah yeah exactly so it's what allows the distant stars to be going faster than that would be expected because of that extra mass and um, that extra dark matter providing that extra gravitational pull exactly um so more evidence came from um observing the bullet cluster. Um, so the bullet cluster is actually two clusters kind of colliding together and then moving through each other. Um, and if you remember from our gravitational, um, our gravity episode again, um, Einstein proposed that space-time could be warped by masses. Um, so if we're thinking about the bullet cluster, obviously it's made up of two galaxies. That's going to be a lot of mass. It's going to mm -hmm. warp space-time. And um, so remember, that's kind of like the depressions on a trampoline. If you imagine putting something heavy in the centre, everything's going to sink around it. That's kind of what space-time does as well when you have a large mass. And because of that like warping of space-time, when you look at those um, distant galaxies, um, their light gets bent around that curved space-time. I think we probably mentioned this as well. But yeah. that, because that light gets bent, it makes the distant galaxies look quite distorted in the image um, because their light's been bent. It's not travelling like to us in like a straight line. And with those distortions, you can like map and work out how much mass and the distribution of that mass that must be inside the bullet cluster um, which is causing the light to be bent. So the bullet cluster, you'd call it a gravitational lens because it's bending the light from distant galaxies. So by like mapping and um, analysing those distortions in the image that you get, you can figure out the distribution of mass inside the bullet cluster. But Ah, so just to make sure, so you can... So if you look at the distortions of kind of like the images you're receiving, yeah. you can guess by how much the light has bent around space-time and thus how much matter is in, how much like mass is pressing down on space-time, which, which is causing that bending. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly um, how they do it. Um, so when you get, you get some kind of like map or distribution of the matter from, from that gravitational lensing, you, you get some results. When they compared that to the results of like the visible matter you could see inside the bullet cluster, most of that visible matter was actually um, towards like the center of the two clusters. Um, so that's because if you imagine the two clusters coming towards each other, um, all the like the the particles are going to kind of like bump into each other and like collide get very hot and emit x-ray gas which is what you see and um, that's what i mean by the visible matter so all that is in the center of the image um, but when the gravitational lensing results show that most of the matter was actually um, distributed around the galaxies so you've got the visible matter at the center but the, the the gravitational lensing results show that the distribution of matter is in a different place it's kind of surrounding the two galaxies and that provided further evidence of dark matter because those two distributions didn't ma match up there must be more matter in the bullet cluster than we can see um, yeah and the reason why you see the the dark matter when you're not seeing it but inferring the dark matter is actually like around the galaxies is because if you imagine when the galaxies collide with each other um, dark matter is quite weakly interacting so that kind of all passes through each other whereas the the 
the normal matter gets kind of like impeded and stopped. So that's at the centre, but the dark matter carries on travelling through and is on the outskirts. And there's a really nice image like demonstrating this, um, which we'll link on our pod page. I suggest you have a look at it because it, it really it makes it much clearer than what I'm trying to describe right now. Um, but yeah, so that was some more evidence for the existence of dark matter. Um, and just, I was just going to say, I, I find it really interesting how, because dark matter is obviously, it's some made of some particles, we're not quite sure yet, and I'll get on to some possible candidates, but I find it so cool that the evidence actually comes from looking at such large scales, looking at space, but yeah. then, but then it's actually, you're actually concerned, well, what is dark matter? That question needs to be answered by particle physics. So I think it's quite cool. It's an area of, I think it's an area of research that kind of combines cosmology with particle physics. I think that's really cool. I know it's like, you can look at these huge huge like too almost too big to comprehend like these giant scales and structures and you all and you want to try and figure it out like figure out what's going on to the tiniest tiniest scales which make up that really big scale it's just yeah yeah it's really cool I agree um so actually if we look at now coming coming away from space looking down at like particle collisions in the LHC so the LHC is the Large Hadron Collider and that's located in um, Geneva in Switzerland it's actually a hundred meters underground and it's like a 27 kilometer ring so that's a really big ring we're talking about and it's actually the world's most powerful and largest particle accelerator so um, the way the LHC works is it has there's two proton beams and they kind of go in opposite directions around the um, the ring and at four different points along the ring the scientists make the beams they kind of steer them slightly towards each other using magnetic fields to make the proton beams collide and in those collisions um, which I think so Olivia was talking about like we kind of mentioned in our last episode because the protons are like hitting each other and then when they hit each other and collide, that produces um, that can produce some energy, and you can get lots of particles decaying. You can sorry, you can get those particles decaying to produce other particles, and that's kind of lots of the work that they do at the um, the Large Hadron Collider. But you can also use those um, collisions to um, infer the presence of dark matter. So if you imagine you have two proton beams colliding with each other head on, yeah, um, that means that one proton beam is travelling in one direction, the other one is travelling in exactly the opposite direction. And so because they both have the same mass, that means um, the momentum before the collision is zero because they're kind of, the velocities cancel are each in other opposite. Out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The velocities are in opposite directions, so um, they cancel each other out. So momentum before is zero. And then um, after the collision takes place, and you can use all the different detectors um, that they have, they have like one called Atlas, one called CMS, you can kind of, it's like a camera kind of, you can pitch, you can track where all the particles from the collision are coming out, which, what particles are being created and like how they're coming out, what directions. And you can sum the momentum of all those particles coming out of the collision to get some value. But if that value is non-zero, then you know you're, you're missing some momentum because momentum has to be conserved. So if your momentum before the collision was zero, the momentum after the collision also has to be zero. So 
if you find when you sum the momenta of all the particles you can see it doesn't come to zero there must be some extra particles which we can't see which are, have been like released by the collision traveling off in a certain direction in order to you know to cancel out the effects and make sure that momentum after the collision is also zero and so yeah. those particles are dark matter particles and um, so that's another way you can infer the presence of dark matter which I, I think is pretty cool oh i see that it's pretty cool and i just wanted to say that um isn't it just amazing the kind of kind of on an engineering front as well the precision of these detectors because i'm am i right in thinking that lots of these particles that are produced when um the proton beams collide only like at last for like the split second not even that and so the detectors have to be so precise and so accurate and the technology just has to be amazing in order to detect that not only just to detect their presence but their momentum and their velocity and everything it's it's amazing yeah exactly it's it really is as you said like a, a really big engineering feat like the i think um the the large hadron collider isn't just about physics it's like a, a it's a collaboration between like engineers and like data analysis and like um like um people who have to write the software because actually this is quite interesting i think they get so many coll collisions because there's actually loads of protons in those proton beams so you get loads of collisions per second i think it's around 800 million collisions per second so obviously that's Whoa. a lot of data to sort through and they actually have to create a program in order to discard like um lots of those and just focus on the like the interesting, interesting collision ones exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they have they had to like write the software to get the computer to discard lots of data and keep only the most interesting ones so yeah it really is like a collaboration between lots of different like fields of science so yeah it's, it really is amazing i agree um so now that we've kind of talked about some of the evidence for dark matter um, let's talk about what actually is dark matter. So this is kind of the question that particle physicists are trying to figure out at the moment. So as I briefly mentioned, dark matter does not interact with the electro electromagnetic spectrum um, or electromagnetic radiation. So that means that we can't see it using visible light, we can't see it using x-rays and all the other um, types of radiation on the EM spectrum. Um, so because dark matter candidates um, must therefore be electrically neutral if they aren't going to interact with electromagnetic radiation. That basically rules out a lot of those fermions we were talking about in the standard model. So just to recap, um, the standard model is a model that describes all the fundamental particles of the universe and how they interact with each other. So the matter particles, the fermions, they're actually split into two groups. You have some quarks, those, those remember those fun names we were talking about yes. last time, Olivia? <laughs> so you have those Up quarks. top, strange charm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you have, um, so you have those quarks and you also have leptons inside the fermions. So all those quarks are charged, so we know those can't be dark matter. But looking at the leptons, so you have electrons in the leptons, but you also have um, this type of particle called a neutrino. So we know electrons are charged, so that scraps the electrons as well. So we're just left with neutrinos um, in the standard model that could be dark matter. So you're like, hmm, okay, yeah, so maybe neutrinos are dark matter. But there's a catch because neutrinos are actually really really light and they travel really really fast that means they're called they're called hot matter because they travel so fast and scientists have realized that if um, um, dark matter 
must be cold in order to produce the structures that we observe. Because if you imagine dark matter was actually um, hot and moving around super quickly in the early universe, it's not going to come together and like, clump together to form the structures that we see because it's just going to be like zipping around way too fast to form yeah. all the galaxies and all the like the stars and stuff that we see in the sky. So that means we know that dark matter, or at least the majority of dark matter in the universe, must be cold dark matter. So now that's ruled out the, the neutrinos in the standard model as well. Um, so people suggested, okay, maybe we need to look outside of the standard model. We need to think about different particles that dark matter could be. Um, so one of the um, proposals was sterile neutrinos. So um, they're much heavier than neutrinos and therefore they're much slower moving. So they could be cold dark matter. So that's one possibility. But I think a more popular um, candidate for dark matter are weakly interacting massive particles or WIMPs <laughs> um, for short. Um, so WIMPs are heavy and neutral, um, which makes them again another great candidate for dark matter. And um, there's, a, there's a theory in particle physics called supersymmetry. Um, so we've talked about the standard model, we've talked about those fermions. The other class of particles in the standard model are called bosons. And those bosons carry those four fundamental forces that we were talking about. Um, and there's a, a crucial difference between fermions and bosons, which I think we've mentioned before. Fermions have half integer spin, whereas bosons have um, zero or one or like so integer spin. And actually, this theory of supersymmetry predicts that for every fermion, there is a, a superpartner boson. Um, and vice versa. And actually the lightest particle predicted by supersymmetry, which is called the neutralino, they all have really fun names. Yes. <laughs> just you look into it, it's really they have really funny names. And um, the lightest particle in supersymmetry, the neutralino, um, fits the bill for a WIMP candidate, fits the bill for being a weakly massive sorry, weakly interacting massive particles. So um, particle physicists are kind of looking for supersymmetric particles in um, the large hadron um in the Large Hadron Collider in those collisions that take place there because they think it could make um, it could make a really great dark matter candidate and might be what dark matter is. Um, but also there's another um, quite popular candidate called axions. So axions were actually first introduced to solve something known as the strong CP problem in quantum chromodynamics. And we briefly touched on this last time, but Quantum chromodynamics is the theory that explains how quarks and gluons, gluons are the, um, the force carrier for the strong force, how they interact with each other. And it's all to do with colour charge, and Olivia mentioned this, so <laughs> colour charge isn't actually like a colour, it's like a number, and um, the way that the quarks interact depends on their colour charge. Um, and um, one of the kind of rules, I guess, of um, strong force interactions is that they should be, um, they, sh they don't, we don't observe them violating um, CP symmetry, which Olivia mentioned. So that, that means that we don't think the strong force should interact any differently with part antiparticles or particles with the opposite parity, so left hand rather than right hand. So um, we observe the strong force behaving like the same way in all those different interactions. But actually, if you look at the like equations of quantum chromodynamics, um, QCD, if you look at the equations, um, there's actually this like term in the equations which, if it was not zero, could allow CP symmetry to be violated, which doesn't make sense because we've never observed that happening. Um, so um, scientists are a bit like, okay, 
maybe the the term is zero but that's a bit unsatisfying like why is it just happened to be set to zero that feels a bit like oh you know like um quite lucky so instead um scientists think that the term is non-zero um so we could in theory see cp violations um um in the strong force interactions but because of this this particle axions um that were proposed um that suggests axions um are like um, physicists think that axions could like kind of negate the f ne negate the effect of that of that non-zero term in the equations, ah. allowing for CP um, to always be um, conserved as as we see in like strong force interactions. Oh, I see. So axions are kind of like the hero saving the day and conserving the symmetry of CP transformations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and also as like um, another, I guess another hero thing about axions <laughs> is that they are cold and they are neutral and they are stable which also makes them good candidates for dark matter ah that sounds like a very good candidate for dark matter yeah exactly so um just to recap we've got sterile neutrinos we've got those um um we've got those wimps so one of the wimps being the neutralino the lightest particle in supersymmetry and we've got axions so there's all these different possibilities that scientists are looking into and we we still don't know what dark matter actually is um and i think that's just really fascinating because it's like a, an ongoing area of research certainly is like loads of potential and um i just i just wanted to say that i think what you were saying about neutrinos and, you know, lots of different kind of like branches of neutrinos being good candidates is really interesting because I think the majority of particle, phys uh, particle physics in the past has focused on quarks. So there's very actually very little experimental data on neutrinos. And apparently they're really, really interesting because they have like an almost unbelievably tiny amount of mass. And there's loads of uh, on top of what you've said, Naina, there's theories that um, they may be their own antiparticle, like within themselves, maybe super heavy um, versions of neutrinos existed in the primordial universe. So it's that in itself is a really exciting scope. Yeah, so those sterile neutrinos would be those super heavy ones that you're talking oh, about. Oh, no yeah. way! I think so. Oh, no way, because... I yeah, because, sorry. Because <laughs> um, I think, so sterile neutrinos are like heavier versions of um, normal, normal, as in the neutrinos we find in the standard model. So they could be those heavy ones that you're talking about, one of the heavy ones. Okay, that's really interesting. If they are, that's really cool, because if you remember what I was talking about, anti-matter... Um, and matter asymmetry in the universe, there are some studies which are studying um, the behaviour of neutrinos because experts suspect that neutrinos and antineutrinos once had these super heavy counterparts only able to exist when the universe was very young and very hot that um, may have decayed asymmetrically and if they did because they're so massive they would have easily been able to kind of tip the balance so if they are the same thing that's cool that kind of yeah like a link. Actually, <laughs> hearing you say that now if they could only exist in the early universe maybe they are I might be they might not be the same thing but oh, <laughs> oh, well, oh well I think it's really interesting what you just said anyway yeah and it's really I don't know it's great how there's so many different candidates for what um you know dark matter actually might be and it just sounds like a really interesting sector where there's loads of discoveries yet to be made. Yeah exactly it does seem like a really like fun area of research I think. Well that's all we have time for this week. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week Naina is going to talk about dark energy. But it's goodbye for now from Spherical Cow. Spherical Cow.